All right, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus 20. As we get back into our Ten Commandments series, we're going to talk about covenant faithfulness and what that looks like not only in a marriage, but also the greater context of the covenant of what we have in Christ our Lord. Covenant faithfulness, Exodus 20, verse 14. I will read that. These are the words of God. You shall not commit adultery. Deuteronomy 5 says the same thing. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for this Lord's Day and the reminder that Christ is our rest. Uh, I ask and pray that as we look to your word that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to find joy in our marriages as you have exemplified covenant faithfulness for us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, it's definitely good to be back with you. I'm thankful for Ron coming, coming and ministering while I was away. I tell you, when Ron speaks, I'm listening. He's a wealth of wisdom, that's for sure. Uh, a, a great brother who I love dearly. Uh, but I'm very excited to get back in our Ten Commandments series. Um, today we're looking at the seventh word, the seventh of the ten words, which is quite important given our current cultural depravity. So when we think about the breakdown of Western civilization, and the inherent problems of trying to build a culture, build a social order apart from obedience to God, perhaps the greatest, most pressing need is recapturing the biblical trustee family. Uh, That may be at the root of it all. That's not to say, of course, the worship and service of God is, is unimportant. Certainly getting the first commandment right in order to, if we get the first commandment in right, in order, in, in the proper place, it's, it's foundational for everything else. It's foundational for obedience to the rest of the commandments. So in a lot of ways, the commandments are like an, a domino effect. Uh, having other gods that are occupying the heart, the soul, the mind, gives way to the construction and fabrication of, of graven images. And of course, in the created order, we pull those images from, uh, I was reading in Isaiah this morning, just uh, the mockery that he gives in Isaiah 43 or 44-ish. Uh, just, he cuts down the tree and uses some of it to prepare his meal, and then he carves an idol, and it's, God's mocking that whole process. <laughs> You're worshiping that thing that you created? That's pretty pathetic. Um, but that's what we do. We create idols, and we worship and serve them. And when all of that happens, when the first commandment's gone, the second commandment's gone, uh, our mouths speak vanities and false oaths about God in front of God. And so this, that type of behavior, will, that type of idolatry breeds a careless view of time. And so we profane the Lord's Sabbath day. So failing on those first four commandments in this manner produces a home of anarchy. Kids disobeying and failing to honor their parents. That's the fifth commandment. So once you've shattered the first table of the law, the first five, then uh, you know, it only follows that men become murderers, adulterers, thieves, liars, and covetous idolaters. So that's the domino effect. You, 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 the first one's gone, the rest fall. And of course, we know to break one is to break them all. That's what James, the brother of our Lord, told us as well. So the unique feature about the Ten Commandments, by way of a reminder, is that there is an interpenetration of each in the others. And what I mean is, when we speak of one of the commandments, we are essentially speaking of all of the commandments. When we reference one, we're kind of referencing all of them, for they go together. All of the ten words belong together. When we add up those words, and we add them up 
together, we get a coherent social order that, that uh, builds and protects and advances the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Um, planting, advancing, and sustaining Christian civilization. Which is to say, I, I need to hasten to add, that um, all the benefits you experience today, all the benefits, um, notwithstanding our current un, you know, uh, problems that we face in statism, a lot of those things are being you know, eroded away, but all of the benefits you experience today come from an ordering of life that's established by the ten words. All the benefits you have, I mean, I've, I've been to places in Africa where you have to be very careful when you go to bed. People, missionaries will hire um, security guards to stay out front all the time, and sometimes that doesn't even go well uh, because they're just as corrupt as the next person. Whoever has the most money usually wins in that, in that case. But the, the fact that you can um, stop at a red light today and everybody else stops at a red light, that's because the Ten Commandments exist, meaning that people just know that there's a, a responsibility to be cautious, to be uh, wise, to be good stewards of your property as you carry yourself out into the world. Uh, some people fail to do that, obviously. But, but all the benefits you experience is all from the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments has given Western civilization the blessings that it enjoys. So Western civilization was built on common law. Common law, of course, is built on biblical law. And those things come to us from men like Blackstone and others who fought for a just social order. Now, with regard to the seventh commandment, which prohibits adultery and other sexual sins, the reason that this interdiction, this commandment exists is because we are also not to have duplicitous hearts occupied by other gods. So... The, the commandment and the warning against adultery is also in relationship to the rest of the commandments, commandments, which essentially tells us there's no room for other gods in your heart. The minute you let that happen, everything else you know, is, is a disheveled mess. So in a similar manner to protecting the marriage covenant, we are to protect the covenant we have with God by being covenantally faithful to Yahweh and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first and second commandments basically converge on this seventh word. Covenant faithfulness toward Christ our King is the prerequisite to covenant faithfulness in the marriage relationship. That's basically the point of what I'm going to talk about in the next little bit. Covenant faithfulness toward Christ our King, that is the prerequisite. That is the priority. And that alone is what establishes covenant faithfulness in a marriage. If you do not have that first, then the marriage will fall apart. Just as Father Yahweh commands that he is worshipped alone, so the marriage covenant must be honored and served alone. So the, the single, think of it this way, the single focus of worship toward God, towards God leads to having a single focus of faithfulness in our marriages. So that's our main focus. Let's look at our text again. Exodus 20, verse 14 reads this. You shall not commit adultery. In Hebrew, we have two words, lo na'af. Lo na'af in Hebrew, it simply means no adultery. So if you were uh, an expert in Hebrew and you were um, reading that along, the commandment is just two words. Lo na'af. No adultery. That's 
exactly what it means. It has generally been accepted, by the way, that this commandment deals with a couple of scenarios. One, it prohibits fornication, such as unmarried persons having sexual relations. So that's the commandment sort of speaks to that. And two, and by the way, part of the logic of that is, is whatever premarital activities that go on are obviously a uh, sort of a, a domino effect and repercussions for the future marriage relationship that one might have. So, you know, you, you can't say, oh, I wasn't married, it was fine, it was all good, it doesn't affect me at all in the future. Well, it, it may actually affect you, whether it's psychologically, emotionally, there are things that people bring into the marriage because of that that can be disastrous. So, the, the, no, no adultery fits under that category. It's not just talking about married persons. It's talking about potentially pre-married person, persons, if that makes sense. But the second thing is the commandment also outlaws and bans and prohibits a married spouse having sexual relations with someone they are not married to. And that person could be, the other person could be someone who is married, but it doesn't have to be. It still falls under the prohibition. In some cultures, and this was especially prevalent in, in ancient Rome, in some cultures, married men could have relations in many different contexts without any legal consequence. It was just sort of a free-for-all. It was assumed the man could do whatever he wanted. And in those cultures, women were not permitted that licentious freedom. They were not able to do such things. And to do so would have made you very much a social outcast. So, of course, you know, in biblical law, we know that's not the case. Adultery is ruled out altogether for both. Um, it's not like one gets more freedom and the other doesn't. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22 says something similar. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman so you shall purge the evil from Israel. In the ancient biblical world, however, there was a possibility for a lesser punishment. Uh, Jeremiah 3.8 is one text that speaks of Yahweh issuing a, divorce, uh, a decree of divorce for Israel. It says, and this is Jeremiah 3.8, She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithful, faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. So regarding divorce itself, I want to make sure I deal with that for a second because it is pertinent. There was, for the man, a laundry list of penalty, death penalties associated with adultery for the man, which would allow the woman to be able to legally remarry. So if a man who was married to, to a woman had committed certain things, uh, it could be actual adultery, what referenced in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and other places. Um, it could be rape. It could, uh, you know, some sort of activity with someone else. <laughs> Incest was qualification for the death penalty for the man. Um, bestiality, of course, sodomy, murder. Um, you know, if a man is a married man and he commits murder, well, he's to get the death penalty. So the covenant's broken and she's free to remarry. That's the logic. Kidnapping, witchcraft, uh, blasphemy, apostasy, cursing of parents, and so on. Those were all uh, things that if a man did as a married man and he received the death penalty for it, she's free to remarry. Now, it's interesting. 
the list for women is much shorter because the logic is the responsibility and authority belongs primarily to the husband, the man in their relationship. So in these situations, in these death penalty situations, a man could remarry if the woman had done certain things. So if she had been unfaithful, whether that's adultery, uh, unchastity before marriage, um, same thing, sorcery, incest, bestiality, uh, transgressing the covenant in certain, um, in certain ways, uh, could just be high-handed rebellion against God and his social order. Those were things in the Old Testament where someone uh, could be put to death and then the, the spouse could remarry, specifically if the woman were doing those things. Uh, I would recommend you take, take a look at Rush Dooney's uh, Institutes of Biblical Law if you want more on that. There's a, he goes through a whole lot of it on there. And a couple more things about divorce while we're here. In the New Testament, Jesus and Paul affirm the validity of divorce, which in that situation, the validity of divorce is op an option. It's not a requirement. So it's adultery. Adultery is a valid grounds for divorce. And Jesus includes fornication in the broader sense so as to include other sexual sins, but it was, it was optional. It's not a manda mandatory thing. So um, you, you could find yourself in a situation where a man or a woman commits adultery, and it, it, you're not required to get a divorce. But according to them, that is a way the covenant is, the, the covenant is dead, um, the death of the covenant. Now, you can resurrect the covenant because Jesus Christ has been raised from the grave, and you can, you can extend forgiveness and mercy, not without obviously you know, implications in the future, but it's not like you have to get a divorce. Um, many people, I mean, people have, have done that. They've had seen the worst of a situation, and God's grace has been ever-present in that. Abandonment, Paul says, is another one, which can include a variety of situations. And, and I don't have time to get into those. But what Jesus tells us in Matthew 19 is that marriage to a divorced person who is to blame for the failure of their marriage, Jesus calls that adultery because the covenant hadn't been broken in terms of the law. So husband and wife, one commits adultery. Uh, excuse me. One, one doesn't divorce on legal grounds. It could be they just didn't like each other, right? And, and they get a divorce and... That's not, a, that's not a good enough excuse. <laughs> um, that's called repentance, and there's growth to be had. But if, 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 a, if a marriage was broken, the covenant was broken, in terms that it weren't in terms of the way God's law says it should be, and someone marries into that, they are now committing adultery. That's the logic that Jesus tells us in Matthew 19. So regarding the text, I do want to add that given Jesus' understanding of Mosaic law, which Jesus' understanding is always the correct understanding, just so we're clear, we, we need to emphasize that it's more than simply intercourse with another person you're not married to. In Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he was saying, you've heard it said, but I say, you've heard it said, He's not criticizing the law of God in the Old Testament. He's criticizing man's interpretations of the law. You've heard it said from some rabbi who's not right this, or he may have been right but didn't go far enough, as it were. Jesus says a lust-filled heart is an adulterous heart. A lust-filled heart is an adulterous heart. That is where the seeds of sin always begin, in the heart. 
And one may try to seclude himself behind his phone in order to satiate his desires, but the arousal of lust in the heart of a man or a woman is a violation of this commandment. So Yahweh, think of it this way in terms of the Old Testament, Yahweh permits no divided allegiances in his relationship to himself. No, you're not allowed to, you know, if you just worship me 20% of the time and you give yourself to idols 80% of the time, it's probably fine. It's never that. There's no divided allegiances when it comes to the worship and service of God. Nor does he permit divided allegiances in the hearts of his married children. So duplicitous hearts are adulterous hearts. If, if your heart is occupied by what you see on social media or the things you decide to search, you are committing this, you're violating this, this command. Lo na'af, no adultery. You are not permitted to do such things. Now, I want to look at this some more. The Bible tells us that base, the, basic to the health of any society is the family structure. Basic to any society is the family structure. You might say, and I agree, as the family goes, so goes the culture. The biblical trustee family is the central custodial institution charged with two crucial things. Two things, property and progeny. Property and progeny. More simply, the family is put in, pla in place for the perpetuity of the children and the covenant and the acquisition of property and wealth and all of it for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. So accordingly, when a, when a culture despises children, be it through abortion or even atomistic humanism, which treats children as disposable liabilities that they can just disregard. I'm going to shove them off to the state so the state can educate them, and then hopefully they'll get out by the time they're 18. That's what our culture thinks of children. Liabilities to be expended and discharged, because we don't want liabilities in that column. <laughs> we, want col we want credit in that column. So we don't want to deal with them. So we put them off into daycare, we hire babysitters, we just deal with them some other way. That's our culture right now. The worst of which is, of course, the sin of abortion. But if a culture does that, it is a suicidal culture. It's a culture with no future. And I was reading a book a few years ago. Uh, I should have written it down. I forget the name of it all of a sudden. But uh, he was tracing birth rates across the world. And Muslim countries like Turkey and even Iran, they are not keeping up with the birth rate. Their cultures will die in the next 50 years. And um, even in Europe, people say, well, by the way, Islam is not the fastest growing religion in the world. It's, it's not. It's Christianity. Um, but they do have a higher birth rate in Europe than the rest of the Europeans. Now, it's not by much, but it is higher. So... European culture will die out and Islam would then take over just by sheer numbers. Now, in America, we are teetering on the brink of a, a serious problem with regard to birth rates. Not only are we murdering children in the womb, but the family's being destroyed. We're not having as many children. I mean, you have to at least have uh, three, one more than the two that started the thing in order to keep it going. Um, but we're in a culture right now that just it's, it's heading in that direction. So if, if Christians can get their kids squared away with Christian education, having biblical trustee families, we'll just win in the end anyway. Because 
you know, the sodomites and all the other people who want to uh, destroy the family, they're just going to die off and their worldview will die off with them. There's no future. So in order to guard the dominion mandate from sinful man's penchant to rebel and disobey the covenant, God established the family as well as the accompanying sanctions which are put in place when the family is discarded and disregarded. So think of it this way, the prohibition against adultery and the case laws that protect the marriage covenant are all there because God desires to populate the world and expand his kingdom through obedient covenant families. So in God's economy, adultery is treason, not just against the spouse, but it's also treason, treason against the culture around him. And this is why there were and should be certain capital crimes for adulterous behavior. Uh, we decided to do the no-fault divorce thing. You guys are familiar with that, I'm sure, in our culture. No-fault divorce. Oh, no one's to blame. That doesn't work in God's law, law word in his economy. There's always someone to blame. There's always liability. There's always accountability for sins and your actions. But we've, we've disregarded that. Um, sexual acts are not private, isolated events. They are connected to the social fabric of a culture. So to usurp the institution of marriage that God has put in place is to usurp God himself. It's to declare war against God. So faith, scripture, biblical law are all designed to make the proliferation of trustee families possible. And, and it needs to be able to protect that as well. Moreover, this explains why the Bible spends so much time on sexual ethics. There is a certain ordering to life and society that is rooted in God's plan for mankind. So in order to carry out, the, in, order to carry out in covenant faithfulness, that which God requires, men must pay careful attention to God's institutional authorities. So any, any breakdown in society can ultimately be traced back to the breakdown of the family and the state's insistence on supplanting the family and being the all-encompassing totality of existence. In other words, the state will become the nanny state. And they will, great, cradle to grave, they will take care of you, right? They'll tax you to death. And then when you die, they'll tax you some more. It's just sort of, aha, spit on your grave. But that's how it works. Thou shalt not commit adultery is put in place to protect marriage, to protect family, and to protect a culture. So when a man leaves his family and cleaves to his wife, we should view this particular covenant in terms of the larger covenant that God has made with his people. All men, and, all men, women, and children, we are all equally subjected to God's sovereign authority. And the Bible also tells us in Ephesians 5 that we are to be in subjection to one another. So there's a mutual subjection, but then there's an orderliness to it. The husband subjected to God, the wife to her husband, and the children to their parents. And all of that is there so that we may fear and obey God's law order. You can't see your family as disconnected from what God is doing in the world. You can't see your family as just, oh, this is just the, my preference. There are certain aspects to the family that are biblical, and there are certain aspects that are mere sin and disobedience. Carting them off to the state. Raising them to be atomistic people who just do whatever they want. Well, wait till you're 40 to be married. It's fine. Nonsense. Nonsense. 
The lust for autonomy will inevitably break down a person, it will inevitably break down a family, and it inevitably will break down a social order. It will destroy a culture in no time. And I bring this up because the basis of marriage, the basis of your, if you're here and you're married, the basis of your marriage is the dominion covenant and the worship and service of God. That is the foundation of your marriage. All right? The basis of marriage is not primarily your love for one another. Uh, I, I remember doing a wedding years ago, and, and um, I had heard some other pastor do this, and I thought, I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak it and build on this. I like that. But w- when I'm doing a wedding ceremony, uh, I'm going to make sure it's clear that we're not all here for you guys. Like for the bride and the groom, we're not here for you. Because <laughs> the minute we're here for you, the minute we ignore the God who's establishing this covenant. We're not here for their love for each other. Oh, isn't that nice? Look how she looks into his eyes. Those are fun things. Fine. You know, I cried when, when Mary walked down the aisle, you know, and it was special. But at the end of the day, like, what, what was happening there was God was present making a covenant. So we're not there primarily for your love for one another. Isn't that cute? Feelings of infatuation. You know, other modern views of romanticism. It's not sexual compatibility either, which has been elevated in our culture. The basis of marriage is God's law word and God's calling on men and women. Jesus makes it clear there's no marriage in heaven. So what's the point of it? It's for something in the here and the now. So when you said I do to your spouse... You weren't just pledging a commitment to your spouse. You were pleading fidelity to Father Yahweh. To invoke the marriage covenant is to invoke God. That's what it's there for. And God's governance of the marriage through strict prohibition against adultery isn't oppressive. It's not, nor is it a killjoy. Oh, God just doesn't want us to have fun. No. Rather, it's the foundation of all joy. It's the foundation of all blessing. This takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Long before we deal with the marriage itself, we have to deal with the individuals who make up the marriage. Uh, Adam was created first. Having spent his morning being a zoologist, God brought to him a helpmeet. You know, the joke goes, he, he, uh, he was put to sleep, you know, of course, in the ground, and God took one of his ribs and made the woman... And he wakes up after the anesthetic, you know, stuff wears off. Anesthesiologist makes sure everything's okay. He's fine. And uh, the joke is, whoa, man, look at her. And that's where the woman comes from. Whoa, man. Bad joke. I didn't make it up. I thought maybe the kids might enjoy that more than the adults. But But God, (laughs) thank you. I might have to find you a special treat for later. She gets an extra cookie. All right. So after being a zoologist, God brings a helpmeet. Adam has brought Eve and someone to walk beside him and aid him in his dominion calling. And Adam, by the way, and this is important too, Adam proved himself to be a responsible young man able to govern himself, able to govern the created order that God had given him to do. And so God blessed him with a helper in order to further carry out the dominion mandate. Now, side note, biblical law in the Old Testament 
put in place a dowry system. You may have heard of it before. A dowry which was given to the bride or the father of the bride, depending on the situation. And that was done in order to secure her position for the future, as well as the children too. What was the dowry? Well, back then, 50 pieces of shekels, 50 shekels of silver, rather, which was considered three years of wages. Not a small amount of money. If you wanted, if you're a young man and you wanted to marry that girl, you had to have three years worth of money saved. And you gave it to her and pledged to her. And the reason is because if you die 10 minutes later or uh, the marriage falls apart, that money's hers. So she has a future. Sometimes the father-in-law would keep it and save it for, for her and it, should the need arise. And in God's economy, being able to work, being able to save, and being able to give the wife a dowry as a pledge of commitment is there so that man can demonstrate his calling to be a self-responsible man. That's way more money than a diamond ring. And I think we should bring this back, by the way. Before we are married people, we are religious people. Before we are married people, we are religious people. The only frame of reference for individuals, families and churches, and societies too, is God and the ordained institutions and authorities that he grants. So men, talk to you for a second. You are called to maturation and work. You are called to that. You are called to self-control. You are called to labor. Now, women, you are called to the same thing. Your labor looks a little bit different. But when men, when, when God brings forth a marriage covenant, we have this beautiful thing called a division of labor. A division of labor. Men are to work and keep, and women are to, to assist in this. Uh, I'm not really worried about who does the dishes. You know, are, are you a team or not? Are you working together? There are some practical considerations. If you're gone working all day, 10 hours, you know, yeah. You, kids, especially when you get older, too, you, you can help with the dishes, too. This is a family unit that works together. It's not a, this is what you have to do, this is what you have to do. It looks different for different people. Um, but again, there's a division of labor in the marriage. So, and that doesn't mean, by the way, that women can't work outside the home either. Just look at how much the Proverbs 31 woman did. Your vocation, and, and there's seasons for that, of course, um, when you have a bunch of littles at home, that's, that should be your primary focus. But your vocation is not to be done solely in terms of making money because money is what makes the world go around, as some suggest. Instead, your vocation... Listen, your vocation is an aspect of your dominion. And your dominion is absolutely your calling. The covenant family is what produces covenant churches, and covenant churches produce covenant societies where justice and peace can prevail. Along those lines, we can conclude that marriage is a safeguard. Marriage is a safeguard. It's a protective measure to ensure that God himself is honored in the world and that God's glory is put on display in all nations. And I should hasten to add that the blessing of physical intimacy in the marriage is put in place so as to strengthen the man's dominion calling and to strengthen, strengthen hers as well. Obviously, having children is one aspect of the intimate relationship. But there's... Listen to what Rushdoony said. I, this was too good not to quote. 
He said, while marriage is the ordained sexual relationship between man and woman, it cannot be understood simply in terms of sex. When marriage is reduced to sex, then marriage disintegrates as an institution and amoral sex replaces it. Marriage has reference, first of all, to God's ordination and then to man and to woman in their respective callings. Because man is to be understood in terms of his calling under God, all of man's life is to be interpreted in terms of this calling also. Dislocation in a man's calling is a dislocation in his total life. When work is futile, men cannot rest from their labors because their satisfaction therein is gone. Quick side. Anybody mow your lawn and get excited about it? Men, women, anybody? Like, I love, I love the smell. You know, I can't get it to stop raining so I can get one more cut in. But um, th that's sort of that satisfaction of work and labor that he's talking about. If there's no joy in that and, and the labor is futile, either you have a false worship problem or there's something else going on. But it's supposed to be a blessing. Men then very often seek to make work purposeful by working harder. Frustration in terms of his calling, this is Rush Dooney, means poor health for man in terms of his physical and mental health, his sexual energy, and his ability to rest. Whereas success in work means vigor and vitality to a man. Every attempt to understand marriage only in terms of sex will aggravate man's basic problem. Do you see the ordering he's talking about? I believe that what he was getting at is that the problem of reducing marriage down to mere pragmatism or utilitarianism, meaning this, in our culture today, marriage is viewed as an outdated ancient institution. And it keeps men and women in bondage. You know, to, to be married in this line of thinking is to be repressed by the old ball and chain. You've heard that, right? The old ball and chain. It's bondage. Well, of course it is. <laughs> we agree that it is bondage. Marriage is bondage. Don't mock it. Embrace it. Marriage is bondage. That's what covenants are. What do you think a covenant is? You are bound together. But that's where the freedom truly belongs. Marriage is about covenant. Covenant is about God. So to rid the world of marriage is to attempt to rid the world of God, which is why marriage is being redefined and lust-filled appetites are explored with abandon. But marriage is not a utility to be discovered by our own autonomous efforts. It isn't up to you to decide what marriage is. You don't get to just make it up as you go. It is the responsibility of the husband and the wife to anchor their sexuality, their sacrifice, their responsibility, and their cooperation together to anchor those things in the law order of God, which is all to say that it's not enough to simply not commit adultery. It's not enough to just not commit adultery. That's, that's the negative aspect of the command. There is also the positive aspect. Cultivate your marriage covenant. That's the command. It's not just don't do something. It's do something. Cultivate the marriage covenant. So I have some questions for you. Let's get personal. What is your marriage for? What is your marriage for? Have you ever even thought, talked this through at all? I've done premarital counseling. It's almost, I almost prefer not to. Talk to me after a year and we'll sort out your problems. <laughs> because you can only say so much. I don't do, you know, 17 weeks of 
five-hour sessions where we get into it and we really dig in. No, it's a waste of everybody's time. Because you, you have to know certain things up front, but at the end of the day, you, if you're not on the same page of what your marriage is for and are actively working it through, then you're, you're a mess. It's going to be a problem. So what is your marriage for? What might your spouse say? Could you guess what they might say? What are you trying to achieve with this covenant? These are good questions to ask. What goals do you have for your marriage? Is it merely to survive? I get it. Diapers pile up. Laundry piles up. And you're just trying to get through the weekend. Is it more than that? Or are you trying to grow in your intimacy, grow in, your un in the unity that God has called you to? See, marriage in a lot of sense is pursuing oneness, a Trinitarian oneness, we might say. Paul, if you remember in the book of Ephesians, he likens the marriage covenant to the, to the relationship between Jesus and the church, Jesus and the bride, the church and the people of God. And I think this, this is why the Bible stresses marital fidelity so much. Adultery in marriage isn't an accident or an oopsie-daisy. It's spiritual adultery, and thus it's spiritual idolatry. To commit adultery, be it in the heart or being with your hands, is to assault the image of God of your spouse. Marriage is supposed to be an all-encompassing enterprise of mutual self-sacrifice and service of the other. That's what it's supposed to be. And when an idol is placed in the middle of that marriage, an idol is placed in the middle of God, in front of God. Idols include, and this is a non-existent, exhaustive list pornography unrepentant emotional attachment to someone you are not married to homosexuality fornication bestiality self-pleasure and the list goes on see sexual sins are not harmless sexual sins lie about god and they efface the image of god in us all of creation including marriage is to be as one writer put a manifestation of the lord of the covenant your marriage is to manifest the covenant that god has with his people in a marriage, once the self becomes the primary referent, when the covenant breaks, that's when the covenant breaks down. The primary reference point is always Jesus Christ. And when that's understood and when that's practiced day in and day out, the marriage flourishes. And the point here isn't to just not commit those sins. The point here is to challenge you, to challenge all of us here, to practice covenant faithfulness. Be the man that God has called you to be. Don't whine and complain. Take responsibility. You know, be the woman God has called you to be. Embrace it. Love it. Enjoy it. Get energized by it. Discharge your duties and responsibilities without complaining. Be dependable and trustworthy stewards towards each other. Are you dependable towards your friends? Can your friends count on you? You know, are you being honest with them? The marriage, that isn't just about you too. It's also about the rest of the people of God. When a man and a woman cut a covenant, they are, they are to be the image of God together as they serve the covenant. And the marriages, the marriages we have, they preach a word. Your marriage preaches something. It preaches a word and it either preaches the gospel of the kingdom, the death, resurrection, and lordship of Christ, or it preaches a false gospel. What is your marriage preaching? It will preach something. Christ is the bridegroom. We are the bride. So it, 
So see to it that your marriage or your future marriage, wherever you're at in that situation, that it reflects this glory. Let's pray. Father, we've gathered here today to honor you and look at your word, and I pray that we have um, done done a sufficient job to explore what it means to not commit adultery, but also to to practice covenant faithfulness. And I pray that our church, the marriages here that that we have now, that they would be strengthened uh, and that you would be honored, Lord. Would we we together, as our marriage marriage covenants progress and and grow and mature, uh, that we would preach the gospel through it, that we we would each be more holy, um, that, that we would see a flourishing of families. And we know that we need your help to do it. So I ask and pray, Lord, as we partake of communion and this agape meal you've provided for us, uh, we glorify you and honor you in Christ's name. Amen.